بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير رب شح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته Alhamdulillah, we have two more classes, one more after this, and we'll be finished with this uh, journey covering the Farda'in knowledge, Alhamdulillah wa shukrulillah. So, if you remember, if you were here in the beginning for the introductory class, I had a set of slides, and... In the first set of slides, I showed what exactly we'll be learning in the Farda'i. And at the very end, there was a pink slide. Does anyone remember that slide? If you have your old slides, you can take a look at that picture. It was meant to be provocative because I wanted to get your attention. We said that as we get to the end of this program discussing the Farda'in, we're going to talk about contemporary issues. Issue, yes, that's the picture. Issues that in and of themselves they're not Farda'in to know about. But in the current environment, you have to know about them. You have to know how to respond to them, how to circumvent them, avoid them, tackle them, and so on and so forth. So tonight's class, uh, usually the slides are about they're between 20 to 22 or so slides, sometimes 24. This class tonight has 31 slides. And the purpose of the slides is twofold. One, it helps me stay on track and organize my own thoughts, but it's also for you to go back to. So. What I hope to do after all of this is said and done is take all of the slides and put this into an actual document. Uh, as it stands, if you just look at slides, it's over, I think, 1,200 slides. So we don't want to have 1,200 pages to go through. We want to condense it down to something that's readable. So tonight's topic is, of course, the elephant in the room, which is the, the alphabet issue or the rainbow coalition otherwise known as dealing with the LGBTQ plus issue or issues concerning this group, the ideology, and the agenda. And we've spoken about this a few times. We spoke about it, I think we did two khutbas about it and we've addressed it before. But this is going to be more formal and structured. Now the first question is, in what way is it fard'ayn to know anything about this stuff? And the answer is that it is fard'ayn, it is individually obligatory on you to know how to respond to fitnas that are widespread and which impact your lives and the lives of those around you. So the idea is that you have an obligation before your Lord. And that obligation 
is to do what Allah Ta'ala commands you to do and to abstain from what He forbids you from doing. So that's the obligation. Now how do you fulfill that obligation? You fulfill it by knowing how to fulfill it, by knowing the command of Allah, knowing what Allah forbids. So if you look at issue X, you know, any issue, right? The obligation is to do what Allah commands you concerning that thing, and the means to that command being fulfilled is knowing how to do it. So the conclusion you get yeah, is the, the, the usuliyun and the fuqaha say, مَا لَا يُتِمُّ الْوَاجِبِ إِلَّا بِهِ فَهُوَ وَاجِبِ Right? Learning about that specific thing will be obligatory because a thing without which an obligation cannot be fulfilled is also obligatory. To give you an easy example, is it obligatory to pray salah? Of course, five daily salahs, is fard. Uh, wudu is a condition of salat, right? Can you fulfill the salat without the wudu? So you have to know how to make wudu in order to pray, right? It's also wajib because it is the means to fulfill that wajib, right? So if it's wajib for us to obey Allah and abstain from the prohibitions, and the only way we can do that is by learning, then we have to learn those things that enable us to abstain from what He has forbidden. This is general. Now for the issue of the LGBT stuff, it is, we would say it's a community obligation, to intellectually challenge the LGBT agenda and its philosophical roots. Not everyone is up to that task, nor is it obligatory on everyone to uh, do that. But what is individually obligatory, fardain, is to command the good and forbid the evil with your own children. You see, next week's class is all about commanding the good and forbidding the evil. But you have a duty as a father and as a mother to command your children to what is ma'roof, what is good, wholesome. And you have a duty before your Lord to forbid them from what is evil. So that means that when this becomes widespread and it's shoved down people's throats and they're bombarded with it in the media and in education, you have to enjoin the good and forbid the evil in this issue that they are hearing about. So you have to educate them, warn them. That means you have to know enough about this issue to give them a proper warning. So this means that parents should familiarize themselves with the basic arguments and the basic talking points so they can adequately address this issue with their children using insight and wisdom. Right? You could use, you know, cruder tactics, but we want to address these things intellectually as well. So we're not just using emotional pressure, we're also using intellect and scripture and reason, right? Because it's not enough to tell children, don't do something, it's bad. You also want to explain why it's bad. And where do we even get the notion of good and bad from? Who gets to say? These things are important for children to know about. So let us begin. First, let's start with the ruling. Uh, does anyone know where this, what this is a portrait of? <laughs> Shaitan. Uh, not quite. 
Uh, this is an old painting that depicts Sodom and Gomorrah. Qawmulut. Qawmulut. So what is the hukum, the ruling? We're talking about, when we say LGBTQ, they use all these letters, but basically we're calling it sodomy, right? The, the classical word used in Arabic is liwalt. Sodomy is haram. And that is ma'loom min ad-deen It is known in the religion by necessity. Right? It's not, it's not subject to any disagreement among the mujtahid scholars. It is qat'i, ma'loom min ad-deen Anyone who denies the prohibition of sodomy in Islam is making takdeeb. They are denying the clear-cut verses in ahadith, and that denial expels them from the fold of Islam, just as if they denied the prohibition of alcohol or fornication and adultery in general. So there's no difference of opinion about sodomy being haram. The only difference of opinion you find in Islamic law concerning this issue is not the act itself, but the consequence of the act uh, between had and ta'zir, between prescribed punishment or discretionary punishment, and what form that type of punishment would take if it was done, A, where there are witnesses, and B, in a society where sharia is established as the law. There are some differences, but there's no difference about the actual legal status of the action. So this is what our children have to know, and of course we have to know. That is the default is just haram, right? Now, but there's some problems that challenge us when it comes to this issue. And I, I present here three challenges. Challenge number one is Muslim youth are facing discussions about LGBTQ at school. And this puts them on the defensive and leads many of them to eventually question their beliefs and values. Just because your kids don't talk about it doesn't mean they're not hearing about it. Just because you think they're on board with the Islamic view on this doesn't mean they may question that or have a soft spot for people who push that. So this is the problem. It's not that it's an idea out there. It's an idea that is in the schools, in the media, in the society. So you may cut yourself off from that media. You may not be in school. So to you, maybe it seems like it's a problem out there, but it's actually inside of your homes because it's in those phones, it's in the schools. So a lot of kids end up questioning their own beliefs and values through social pressure. Now I must say, uh, I didn't intend to say this, but I think it's worth saying. Uh, we, you know, we believe in you know, basic human nature, you know, the basic patterns among human beings. And Allah says, وَلَيْسَ ذَكَرُكَ الْأُنْثَى uh, are not, males are not like females. So we recognize that there are gender differences uh, in personality. So generally speaking, women 
females tend to be more uh, higher on the openness and agreeableness in the personality. And males tend to be lower on agreeableness. What that means is, in any given setting where there are young men and young women, you tend to find that there are more young women who, in order to, to express compassion and not to rock the boat, will express sympathy or support with LGBT ideology or people uh, much more than males. Males are more likely, they may be quiet, but some of them may be more likely to say no, just because they're males, they're, they're lower on agreeableness. So this is also has to be factored in. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is uh, Muslim youth, like everyone else, are bombarded with LGBT imagery, characters on shows, commercials, and passive and active acceptance and tolerance of it as a lifestyle, if not overt celebration. So this is a slow, toxic drip that desensitizes them to evil. If you are, you know, my age or older, you remember a time where these things were not seen or heard. And when they came out here and there, there was a visceral disgust. Well, now that's no longer the case because turn on any TV and every second or third commercial, they're going to put the couple, the, you know, the same-sex couple there. They're overrepresented in media and in commercials because it's not about selling a product. It's about shaping minds and normalizing behavior. So they do that by demoralizing the general public who are against this by just bombarding them with this imagery. Now look at this picture on the slide. What do you notice there? What stands out? The Muslim girl. You see the Muslim girl. So Muslims are a part of that intersectionality. Um, you know, in the whole intersectionality, they, you know, they talk about tolerance and, well, Muslims are different, so we'll kind of include them. But you have to, they're including them on their terms. And they expect reciprocity, that you also accept them. So this is the problem. So that's problem number two, is just they get, people get desensitized you, because they see it all the time. They get used to it, right? Uh, problem number three, and this is a huge one, and I'm, this is for everybody, but particularly the youth. Uh, the third problem that relates to LGBT issues is the proliferation of free pornography consumed on phones by young people. This has led to an absolute epidemic in porn addiction among young people. This is primarily among young men, but surprisingly so. It's even increasing among young women. This has actually played a very important role in desensitizing people to the LGBT lifestyle, right? Even if people self-identify as heterosexual and that's all that they consume, the increased drive, you know, the increased addiction to that kind of material, basically it pushes the viewer to seek more dopamine hits from more uh, perverted contact worse and worse stuff because it's like a drug it's like a cigarette it's like something that you get addicted to 
if you take, you know, X milligrams of a drug day after day, eventually you don't get the same feeling. You get to go for four, then six, then 10, then 20, and then you move on to something harder. It's the same thing with the dopamine hits that come from viewing that kind of stuff. And for young people, what happens is as they fry their dopamine receptors through viewing this stuff, they end up looking for uh, more perverted stuff, harder, harsher stuff. That desensitizes them to these kinds of actions, right? Uh, Lee Wild. Now, there's some studies that show that those who consume this stuff multiple times a day are actually more than twice as likely to identify as bisexual. So basically, if you wanted to boil all of that down, um, watching that stuff can turn you gay. Like that's the, the unscientific way, but essentially true, right? Not for everybody, but in the long term, it desensitizes people to that stuff. And even if it doesn't turn them into that, there are studies that the people who are addicted to that, they become more accepting of those behaviors, even though they don't identify that with that themselves. So you look at the slide here and look at the picture. The largest group of internet porn consumers is children between the ages of 12 and 17. That is the reality. It's the unspoken uh, elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. It's a reality. That contributes to the problem as well. Uh, then you come to the media, which we address a little bit. Uh, the first half of this is just talking about the problem, the solution, and the arguments come second. Uh, the media, you know, I mentioned earlier how you're seeing this more and more in the media. You turn on any TV show, and the second, third commercial has got some of this stuff in it. Of the 118 films from the major film studios in 2019, 22 of them contain characters who identified as LGBTQ. A study on this states that a new database from Insider confirms more than 250 LGBTQ plus characters in children's cartoons dating back to 1983. 1983. This didn't start last year, didn't start in 2012, going back. And if you look at the data from 2010 through 2020, especially 2015 until now, 2020, the representation of overtly queer characters skyrockets. Sesame Street, SpongeBob, and more have had LGBT characters. What does that stuff have to do in a children's cartoon? What do you think it's for? If we talked, we talked about evolution a couple weeks ago, didn't we? Or was that last week? And you know, we talked about the, the limits of that and how there's some aspects of it that are acceptable. And if you look at homosexuality from an, an evolutionary lens, it is an evolutionary dead end because they don't reproduce. Right? They don't reproduce uh, unless they adopt or unless it's through other means. Like they don't reproduce, obviously. That means it's a genetic dead end. So the only way they can continue to survive is by indoctrinating young people. That's why it's coming into cartoons. So that's another issue. Then we come to education. Now, what we have are 
a number of states that have passed legislation or that have included, quote-unquote, inclusive curriculum standards that may or may not be signed into law. So you have California, Colorado, Illinois, New Jersey, Oregon, Rhode Island, Nevada, and Washington State mandate LGBT education. That means you have to study it in school. You can't opt out in those states. Other states have introduced inclusive curriculum standards, but have not signed statewide bills. Now you see the graph here. Uh, The ones that are in, uh, I believe, the ones that are uh, in orange, you're able to opt out of that kind of curriculum. The ones that are purple, it's mandatory, you can't opt out. Uh, The yellow ones mean that there's nothing in the law books and there's nothing specified in the curriculum. It's just nothing's been done one way or the other. And then the red are the ones where it's actually prohibited, right? Uh, Not a coincidence. We're talking about Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Florida. Uh, And those are also red states as well. So we're a yellow state. Pennsylvania is a yellow state. I don't know that there's any specific curriculum. It's not really addressed. I think it's up to the teacher. If they decide to push it, they push it. But it's not mandated nor is it something that's uh, in the curriculum. So it's being pushed through schools as well. Now this graph is actually used in some public schools. This is called the gingerbread person. Uh, I encourage you to look through these images and understand. Um, This basically crystallizes the way they're teaching young people about the difference between gender identity, gender orientation, and sex, or gender expression, uh, which is all of these things put together. Uh, This is the kind of stuff that they're pushing, right? And and in Canada, by the way, it's far worse. Canada is mandated across the board. Now, I want to tell you a true story. Now, maybe you look at these graphs and you look at the LGBT curriculum in state education, you look at this graph and you think, well, okay, well, that's in public school. I can put my child in an Islamic school, and that will fix everything. Well, I'm here to tell you that the children who are going to Islamic schools also consume the same media that pushes this stuff. So the ideas that they get are imported into the schools that they attend. So I want to tell you, I want to share with you a story. This is not my experience, but this is someone involved in education. Uh, They tell this story. I'll just read it. They say, a friend of mine is an Islamic school teacher in the U.S. She teaches high school students. Her main message to me in a conversation I had with her yesterday was, Young Muslims are struggling with the LGBT issue at alarmingly high rates. She reported that kids are watching all sorts of shows and movies and playing popular video games that are riddled with LGBT characters and themes. The natural extension of that is behavior. Our behavior in daily life 
generally tends to reflect the kind of content we consume on a screen, right? So it's common, even at Islamic schools these days, for there to be, quote-unquote, lesbian female students who are known as a couple, both wearing the hijab. Students and teachers all know that these two Muslim high school girls are, quote-unquote, seeing each other or dating. It's generally left alone and not addressed. But it continues. One day, a Muslim male teacher told the Muslim students in his classroom that gay acts are not Islamic. Seems pretty basic Islamic knowledge, right? Homosexuality is haram. The students had a fit, they say. They, these were all Muslim kids in the age range of 15 and 16 years old. They have Muslim parents who are ostensibly practicing and who send their kids to Islamic school. These kids, after hearing their Muslim teacher tell them the correct Islamic position on LGBT acts, started yelling at him and hurling at him all kinds of cliche Western liberal labels. Homophobe, transphobe, bigot. The class got out of hand. One 16-year-old Muslim male student got so angry and so confrontational with the teacher that the Islamic school had to expel him over his aggression during this incident. This is one story. I've, I've heard of similar stories in different states. This is a reality. Just because you put your kid in an Islamic school does not mean you, you found the solution because they bring ideas into the school. And your kid may not even be exposed to those ideas. Then you bring them to the Islamic school and the other Muslim kids expose them to those ideas. This is the reality that we're facing across the country. So, I don't want to go through too many of these slides. I'll just go through this one quickly, because uh, I'm probably scaring many of you right now. Um, you know the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, where he talked about how the Muslims will follow the ways of those before them hand span by hand span and arm length by arm length. To the point that if they were to enter into a lizard hole, the Muslims would enter behind them. And the Sahaba said, uh, are these people you refer to, the Jews and the Christians? And he said, Faman, who else if not them? So the idea of going into the lizard hole, following behind the ways of the dominant culture. Some of the ulama mentioned something really interesting about this hadith. They note that you know, if you think of a lizard hole, a lizard hole is quite narrow, isn't it? It's not so easy to get inside of it, and it's tight, it's constrictive. So if a person is following behind them to the point where it's like they're going into a lizard hole, they are purposely making their lives more difficult. They're putting themselves in a constrictive position by following the dominant culture. So this, I've shared this a couple of times. Uh, you have Pew Research, and they conduct these polls every few years. And in, two, in 2017, they did a, a poll uh, asking Muslims about whether they agree with the statement homosexuality should be accepted by society. In 2017, 52% of American Muslims agreed with that. That makes it a majority. You know, if you told me, and I became Muslim in the 90s, if you told me in the 1990s, 
you would have Muslims saying that it's an acceptable lifestyle, I would never have believed you. It was absolutely unthinkable. But here we are. And it's, it's increasing. It says that uh, Muslim women are much more accepting of LGB people than their male counterparts. Notice the T is missing. Uh, with 63% of women supportive compared to 42% of men. That goes back to what I was telling you about the agreeableness and the disagreeableness in the personality traits distributed across males and females generally. And they found that this support was 60% among millennials, 57% among U.S.-born Muslims, you know, your children, and not yours specifically, but I mean the children of you know, people who've immigrated here, and 49% of foreign-born Muslims. So if you're foreign-born, you know, it's still half. It's still half, which is crazy. It, or 49%, one percentage point. That's still crazy. But then it's even more with the children of those who were born outside of the U.S. And then among the millennials, which I can't remember the exact cutoff age, like what year to what year, but yeah, that, that age group, you know, people who are in their 20s, early 30s, 60%. 60%. So this is a spike. Uh, back in 2011, it's only 39%. Uh, and then in 20, uh, 2007, uh, it was 61% not accepting. Right? So this is a problem. It's only increasing. So here we come to the talking points. How do you respond? Now, if you're talking to your kids or talking to other people, there's... We know that this stuff is haram. We know that it's degenerate and we should be calling against it, right? But how do you actually address the common arguments people bring up? When you look at the people who try to justify this stuff, they tend to default on certain key arguments. They will use uh, the argument of minority rights, They'll say that you know, LGBTQ is viewed as a community experiencing discrimination like the Muslims are, and we need equal protection, so you should support us for that purpose. So they use minority rights as a way to get a foot in the door for acceptance. Or they use the naturalistic argument. They say, well, it's natural because some animals are homosexual, or they express you know, homosexuality through homosexual acts in the animal kingdom. And they use examples in, from the animal kingdom to show that, well, they do it, so it's natural. So what's the problem if we do it? Then they use the argument of freedom. The freedom argument is basically, uh, this is the more common one. They'll say, well, you know, what two consenting adults do behind closed doors is none of your business. How is it harming you? How is it harming society? What two grown people do in the privacy of their home, two consenting adults. So that is the freedom argument uh, or the consent argument. And lastly, uh, another common one is the idea that people are just born that way. People are born gay. And because they're born that way, it's wrong for you to criticize them and their behaviors because they essentially have no choice over the matter. 
And I'm sure there's other arguments, but these are the main ones. So if you know how to respond to these, you can respond to the others quite easily. So let's go through these. Now, I want you to pay attention first to the picture. This picture, I should probably enlarge it. This is a picture, a screenshot from the Twitter page of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan. Now, can you imagine rainbow flags flying in Kabul? It just doesn't compute, right? This is Afghanistan we're talking about. And in this uh, tweet from the U.S. Embassy, it says, the month of June is recognized as LGBT Pride Month. The United States respects the dignity and equality of LGBT people and celebrates their contributions to the society. We remain committed to support civil rights of minorities, including LGBT persons. Um, they even had the, LG, the, the, the rainbow flag flying outside of the embassy in Kabul. This is actually shortly before it all fell apart, right? Why would they even do that? Because that's a part of normalization. Now, so notice how it's talking about civil rights of minorities in the tweet. So how do you respond to that? Well, you respond by saying that this appeal to minority rights is a smokescreen, because what is really meant is secular liberalism as the basis for determining the rights of others. And if you accept that framework, that it is secular liberalism that establishes the rights that people have, that means you are accepting secular liberalism as that determining framework of who gets rights and what rights and who doesn't get rights. By accepting that as the framework, you undermine the Islamic command to enjoin the good and forbid the evil. Because if you accept that framework, how can you command the good and forbid the evil? How can you say, Allahumma inna hadha munkar? How can you say, that is evil? if you've accepted the framework that, mean, that establishes this is their right, it's their haq, right? Does anyone have the haq to establish these practices? No. If they do them, they are violating the haq of Allah who forbade them. By accepting this under the guise of minority rights, you are implicitly accepting that humans determine what is right and what is wrong based on their self-created secular liberal worldview and not the creator. So we can't allow them to use this as an argument because anything that is haram doesn't become halal just because a minority of people wish to take it as their identity. That's not how we determine rights of people, right? Now, we're not talking about violating the rights of people who happen to identify with that. We're not mentioning that. We're talking about the idea of it being wrong and saying, well, it's actually okay because, you know, they have minority rights, so you should accept it. No. Now, the naturalistic argument. How many of you heard this before? Well, the animals are gay. Some animals are gay. Therefore, it's okay. Right? This is... It's out there, and it's an argument. How do you respond to that? Uh, it's a very simple response. 
nature does not determine law. What happens in nature does not determine law. Are animals accountable in sharia? Do animals have a sharia? No. They're not mukallaf. Halal and haram do not apply to animals. So what occurs in the natural world among the animal kingdom does not determine law. That's one point. Number two, you look in the sharia and you find that there are certain things uh, that are not expressed in nature, such as laws concerning circumcision, khitan, cutting your nails, trimming your hair. These are all things within the sharia that are not expressed in nature. So there are certain things that we are commanded to do or recommended to do that are not expressed in nature. Right? Furthermore, when you look into nature, you see other things they do. If it's, just, if it's acceptable to do whatever the animal kingdom does, that opens a Pandora's box, doesn't it? Because we see that in the animal kingdom, some animals eat their own young. When I was a little kid, I had a pet hamster. It had babies. It was like seven or eight babies. I come back the next day, there's four. It was eating them. My first time learning about this. Some animals eat their young, right? So does that mean that it's now moral for us to eat our young? Can we use the naturalist argument and say, because animals eat, some animals eat their young in nature, it's moral for us to do the same? Doesn't work, right? Some animals eat their own defecation. Is that now moral for us to do? Of course not. So the idea is that nature is not a guide. Nature does not determine law. And there are things in nature that grow naturally that we can't eat. So the prohibited substances are not just certain animals, psychedelic mushrooms, marijuana, uh, opium. These things grow naturally, but to cultivate them into these drugs and take them, that would be haram. Just because something exists in nature does not confer uh, a moral status or allowing a person to do that thing. So, as we said, it's an evolutionary dead end. So it's not actually natural at all. It goes against nature. Now to the big one, the freedom argument. The idea that it's none of our business what two consenting adults do behind closed doors. How do you answer that question? Right? It takes on different forms. You know, what do you care what two consenting adults are doing? Or um, uh, as long as we're not hurting anybody, you should accept it and leave it alone. So we say that consent does not render something legitimate. So imagine you have two adults. They are both of sound mind. And they both consent to kill each other simultaneously. One, two, three, we both pull the trigger. He consents and the other person consents. Does that now legitimize them killing each other? No. Consent doesn't legitimize certain practices. If two consenting adults consent, a brother and sister consent to incest, does that render it okay? No. Now, some people actually believe it's okay because they take the consent and apply it 
consistently to everything, including incest, but we know that it doesn't legitimize incest. So that's to the consent issue. And then to the side that says, well, you know, what do you care? Who is it hurting? It's two, it's two adults doing this behind closed doors. What they do doesn't affect you. So why should you care? This is a major one. And out of all of the arguments I've seen affect young Muslims, this is the one that affects them. Of those who get affected, this is the one. They are bombarded with that among their peers. You know, why do you care? It's not hurting you. If as long as they're not hurting anyone, they're not hurting you, why do you care? Right? How do you respond to that? Well, there's different ways. We would say that, number one, yes, actions can be private, but values are not private. They're public. When they push the LGBTQ agenda in law, in the media, in Hollywood, in education, is it private anymore? Like the actions may be private, but the values that they are pushing through the media and the law are not private, they're public. It becomes a public affair. That means that the agenda is affecting society, right? And that's just the surface. You know, as Muslims, we believe in a metaphysics that people's sinful actions do have an impact on the world. As Allah Ta'ala says, ظَهَرَ الْفَسَادُ فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحَرُ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ Corruption has appeared on land and sea due to what people have earned with their own hands, what they've done. So we can look at a few effects in society that result from this uh, lifestyle. Uh, number one, lower birth rate. The more people doing that, the less children being born. The less children being born, the more elderly people there are. The ratio gets skewed where there's more elderly people than young people. And that means there's fewer children to look after elderly parents. So this is going to be harmful to elderly parents. That also becomes a larger tax burden and an increase in the retirement age because it's now affecting the distribution, the age distribution among young and old in society. It leads to dysfunctional families and social ills in the breakdown in society. It leads to a destruction in communities. It leads to this atomism, the idea of a family, the idea of a husband and a wife and a children as a unit with an extended family that has ties through blood relations that build part of a community that sustain values. All of that is broken down when people embrace this ideology because it's an evolutionary dead end. There's no children unless they recruit children through media or other means. So these are just some harms to the public that result from the LGBT agenda and the actions. So as we said, it's not just a private act. It involves a social movement that doesn't just affect society, but it also seeks to subvert society. It's not just some minor harms here and there that happen to arise as a result of this lifestyle. No, it's an active effort to subvert the society and mold it into its own image.
So secular, looking at this more broadly, secular liberalism is focusing on the individual at the expense of society. Your personal freedom is the idol that trumps everything, right? Even if society goes to hell, as long as you exercise your freedom, that is a supreme value. So that is secular liberalism in a nutshell. Individual liberty at the expense of society. But Islam balances the rights of society and the rights of the individual. You don't sacrifice one for the other. And if one is impacting the other, something is wrong. So that is one way of responding to the freedom. Another way is to reflect on a very powerful hadith that puts the whole consent and freedom thing into perspective. Uh, this hadith is in Sahih al-Bukhari. In it, the Prophet ﷺ said that the likeness of the man who observes the limits prescribed by Allah and that of the man who transgresses them is like the people who get on board a ship after casting lots. They decide who gets on and whatnot. Some of them are in the lower deck and some of them are in the upper deck. So you have this boat. No one really wants to be at the bottom. You want the, you want the scenic top part of the boat. But people draw lots to see who goes to the bottom, who goes to the top. So now you have group on the top and group on the bottom. Those who are in the lower deck, they, when they require water, they go to the occupants of the upper deck and say, if we make a hole in the bottom of the ship, we're not going to harm you. <laughs> we're just going to drill a hole. The water will come in and we'll get the water. If they, meaning those on the top, leave them to carry out their design, what's going to happen? They're all going to drown. But if they do not let them go ahead with their plan, they stop them, then they will all remain safe. This tells us something very powerful. When certain ideas and uh, practices spread in society, it's not just harming the people who do them. It's also harming others in the society when they don't try to stop it. So you have to bear that in mind. Okay, so born this way. This is another argument. They say, how can you condemn this behavior? I was born this way. The idea being, if you are born this way, you have no choice. It's instinctual. Why would God punish you for something that is instinctual that he put in you? Right? Uh, this is just a claim. Right? When people say these things, don't just assume they're correct. Or you can challenge that. That's a claim. There's no scientific consensus on this. There's none. Right? And even if it were true that people are quote-unquote born this way with an inclination towards that, because there are some people like that, that doesn't make homosexuality permissible. Right? Desires don't legitimize actions. Just because you desire something doesn't mean, oh, I desire it, green light, let's do it. If you desire alcohol, you know, 
does that mean you can now go drink? No. Having a desire, even if you think you're more naturally inclined to that thing, doesn't mean that it's now okay for you. A thief can easily claim, who are you condemning me for stealing people's purses and wallets? I was born this way. Uh, can he steal without consequences? Right? Someone's going to say, well, yeah, that's, that's hurting other people, though. We're talking about something that's not hurting other people. Um, but the same can be said for pedophiles and zoophiles who are into bestiality. They can also claim, well, yeah, I was born this way. Right? And, it, you know, in, people will say, well, yeah, that's harming the animal or the child that can't consent. So we, we also get back to that consent argument. Well, as long as they consent, why, why do we care? I want to give you a response to the consent argument, another one. Um, anyone know this meme? This is the uh, fedora atheist guy. Basically, the person, the kind of person you'd see on Reddit, you know, who's, uh, arguing for atheism and consent. Uh, it's a stereotype, it's a meme image of an uh, atheist guy. So, here's a little dialogue. Right? You, imagine you have person A and person B. Person A says, why is sex with animals wrong? Person B says, because the animals can't consent. Person A says, well, is murder a bigger crime than rape? Person B says, yes, of course. Person A says, do you seek the animal's consent when you slaughter them to make burgers? That's a kind of murder, isn't it? At least, especially according to PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Do you seek the animal's permission, its consent, before you slaughter it to make a hamburger or steak? No. So person A says, well, if you don't need consent to slaughter the animal, why would you need consent to rape it? Bestiality. So... There's no real answer to that. This is the, you know, the end point of secular liberalism when anything goes because there's no moral standard as long as you're not hurting anybody. Now, uh, what time is it? Okay. All right. Now, you know, a person may hear this and think, okay, yeah, I get it. We're Muslims. We know this is all haram. So what's the big deal? Why should we focus all of this time and attention to the LGBT issue? Aren't there bigger problems going on in the Ummah and in the world at large? What about this? What about that? Well, it's actually quite important to address this. And the discussion about the LGBT agenda is not just about the movement. It's not just about the specific advocacy of homosexuality. Because when you discuss the broad LGBT agenda and the philosophical roots of the LGBT agenda, you see that it strikes at the heart of this postmodern, liberal, secular worldview. So when you discuss the philosophical roots of the LGBT agenda, it's not just about homosexual acts, it's about everything. It's about everything that undergirds the postmodern world that we live in today. Because when you take a firm stance about the LGBT 
agenda, you are put into a position where you have to discuss theology, belief in Allah. You have to discuss morals, who gets to say what is right and wrong. You have to discuss fiqh, law. You have to discuss gender, gender nature, gender roles, rights and responsibilities between the different genders. You have to talk about marriage as an ideal institution. You have to talk about feminism. You have to talk about a host of issues that are very important. So LGBT is an ideology and an agenda, but it's beneath it lie all of these other issues. And by discussing it, you have to discuss all these other issues too. So there's a collective net benefit in knowing about this stuff and knowing how to address them. So when we discuss the LGBT issue, it's not just about haram intercourse, right? It's about all of these things at once. It's not a single issue, but it's several issues all subsumed under the postmodern liberal sec secular uh, hegemony. Um, I'm going to skip a couple of slides and leave them for you because uh, I don't want to get too bogged down. Um, in this slide, we talk about how the LGBT ideology actually undermines Tawheed. And if, you know, that's a lot of text there. To shorten that, basically, if you internalize this assumption that it's my body, my choice, and I have absolute autonomy to do whatever I want with whomever I want sexually, basically, you are associating yourself as a partner with Allah as being the legislator and the one who uh, makes these kinds of choices, rejecting Allah's creative agency and authority to determine what is allowed and disallowed for you, in a nutshell. So it does undermine Tawheed. Now here, in the time that's left, we want to talk about the distinctions between thoughts and actions and different approaches for people who have this struggle. You know, in Islam, we make a distinction between thoughts and actions. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not judge people for the thoughts that come into their mind. They're not judged for desires that may arise within them. They are judged for what they do. So if a person has a drinking problem, for instance, and they have a desire to go drink, they are not accountable for the mere desire to drink. They're accountable only for going and be doing the act of drinking alcohol. Same thing for homosexuality. The Prophet ﷺ says that Muslims are forgiven for their thoughts as long as they don't speak on them and act on them. Your thoughts do not define who you are. A lot of times these desires and thoughts, they arise through different factors. You shouldn't uh, overly identify with those thoughts and desires and say, I desire it, therefore it's my identity. Right? So we make that very sharp distinction. So this means that, it, yes, it is possible for a Muslim to be tested with same-sex attraction. attraction. That's their test. And you know, I, I've met individuals like that. That is their test. But there's also Muslims who have been tested with desire to drink alcohol. Muslims who have had drug problems and struggle with addiction. 
Muslims who desire zina and they struggle with that. These should not be made their identity. You, they don't say, I am Fulan the homosexual, or Fulan the zani, Fulan the, the alcoholic. Don't do that. So the identity is distinct from the thoughts and the actions. Um, but what we see in the modern world is the conflation between thoughts and actions and identity. Modern culture separates three things that are actually very tightly bound, and they gather three things that should be separate. So they gather what should be separated, and they separate what should be gathered. So what do they separate that should be gathered? They separate sex from reproduction and from marriage slash morality. So there's sex, there's reproduction over here, and then there's marriage morality over there. They separate these things, but these things should be all together. One informs the other, because sex and reproduction in the Islamic worldview is through the institution of marriage. If you separate them, it's basically zina and homosexuality or whatever has nothing to do with uh, marriage and reproduction. So in the past, these three things were bound together, but now we see they're separated. On the flip side, modern culture has combined three things that should be separate. Desires, actions, and identity. Desires, actions, and identity. Just because you desire something doesn't mean you have, to you have a past to do it. And just because you do something doesn't mean that it defines you and should be taken as your identity. You keep them separate, right? But today, what do we see? Sin has become the identity of the sinner. They're not just the person who struggles with the sin, they identify with the sin. It becomes an expression of who they are. But these two things should be separate, right? Now you see this, uh, this picture here, the rainbow flag. And what does it say there? Love is love. How many of you have seen those posters or the placards that are outside people's homes? It's love is love. I, I, I see them all the time. How do you respond to that? I, I've given you the answer, by the way. Love is love. Okay, what is love? Is love a feeling or an action? It's a feeling. So, are we talking about feelings or actions here? I'm talking about actions. So a person says, well, love is love, therefore, accept this. No, we say, well, love is a feeling. Just because you have the feeling doesn't mean you automatically get to act on the feeling, right? If, you know, hate is hate as well. Does that mean I get to knock people over the head, right? Why is one acceptable and the other is not? Right? So, and they're going to say, well, there's no consent and all that. I get it. But the point is, feelings don't legitimize actions uh, on their own merit. Right? So we separate between thoughts and actions. We separate between uh, that, those and identity. You are only morally responsible 
or what you have control over. So if a Muslim experiences same-sex attractions or gender identity disorder, dysphoria, that feeling doesn't constitute a sin. It doesn't mean that they are necessarily distant from Allah or displeasing to Allah if they struggle with the feelings. But we're responsible for our actions. Refraining from haram behavior or deliberate imitation or impersonation of the opposite sex. If you consider homosexuality a question of identity rather than actions, you have embraced the flawed argument of the LGBT movement who seeks to make uh, sexual identity uh, immutable like race and gender. You can't change your race. You can't change your gender. Not really. You can pretend to, but you can't really. So the, because you can't change your race, they want to link homosexuality to those immutable changes, those immutable qualities, and make it a, a, a civil rights issue, right? Where supporting their rights is the same as supporting the rights for people of different ethnicities, uh, gender rights, and so on. Um, we can't accept this. Because by accepting it as an identity, it changes the discussion entirely because it's no longer about moral concerns. It becomes an issue of social justice because sexual uh, desires become the identity. It's like gender and race. It's an unchangeable part of who they are. So then it becomes a civil rights issue. It's not a civil rights issue. It is a moral issue, right? It's not an inherent part of the identity because you don't have a choice about your race or gender. You do have a choice about what you do. And as Muslims, we say that if you have sexual, homosexual desires, but you don't act on them, you're not gay. You're not. It's only the person who acts on them. So, what do you do? Uh, strongly and confidently establish Islamic gender and sexuality paradigms. Now, you, you know, know the basics. Be very clear. Be unapologetic. Number two, understand that gender is binary. Gender differences are real. They're God-given, and they are to be celebrated and not suppressed. Understand that sexual expression is legitimate only in the context of an Islamically valid relationship between a man and a woman. It's pretty basic, but we have to emphasize these basics. Um, actively critique and deconstruct the postmodern paradigm of the post-sexual revolution and show what's wrong with it. You know, study these slides, read books on this topic, inform yourself about the roots, the philosophical roots of these ideas. Reject the sexual identity paradigm. Reject the idea that uh, merely having those attractions makes it a part of your identity. And separate between desires, actions, and identity. Okay? Further reading. If you're really interested in going deeper into this subject, then I would recommend these four books. There are several other books out there, but I think these four are the best. Uh, starting from the right to the left, we have Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, 
by Abigail Schreier. This is a bestseller, by the way. It's a very good book. Um, and out of all of these books, this is the easiest one to read. Uh, the next one is called Strange New World. And this is basically examining the philosophical roots of all of these ideas. How did these things become a thing? Um, the third book, mm, I will put that at the, the bottom of the list only because it's 800 pages. <laughs> it's called The Transgender Industrial Complex. Uh, maybe some would consider that a somewhat controversial book, but it traces uh, this complex of pushing this and pushing these surgeries and the manufacture and sale of the hormones. And, you know, do you know where, do you know where most of the hormones are manufactured for the gender? Israel. Yeah. Right. And there's actually people out there in social media saying, I'm caught in a dilemma. I want to support Palestine but I'm going through my gender transition and I need my hormones. And I'm worried about my hormones being cut off. So what do I do? Right, so it talks about that, uh, tracing this historically, how it spread. Uh, and lastly, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. This, I think this is the best book out of the whole bunch. And this just traces the idea of uh, uh, desires, actions, and identity, and how the things used to be separate, and how the modern world has grouped them together. How that happened and how do you address it? This is by a, uh, a Christian uh, philosopher and writer. Um, the author of Strange New World and The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self, same author, Carl Truman. These are the two best books in the collection. The first one is the easiest to read, Irreversible Damage. Um, the Transgender Industrial Complex. Uh, it's really, if you want to go deep into the issue and yeah, alarm yourself, I guess. Um, so that is all that I have to say. As I mentioned in the beginning, these slides are for you to review, to look over, and these give you some tools. You know, you should have these conversations with your kids, right? And they should know these basics. It requires a lot of bravery to go against the grain, to stand up and say, I don't agree with certain things that are now in vogue. And as I mentioned in the khutbah today, the Prophet ﷺ says, do not be an imma'a, a conformist, who just goes along with what everyone is doing. If everyone is a lemming, you know what lemmings are? These little animals, these little mammals that when they run in a pack, they'll even run off a cliff and they all stay in the group and they all end up off the cliff dying. You can't be a lemming. You have to think for yourself and think morally. And that requires some bravery. So you'll instill your kids with bravery so that if they are faced with these uncomfortable conversations, they're not left uh, unarmed with arguments. You, you want, we want uh, our young people to not be on the defensive in everything. We want them to be on the offense, where they challenge ideas, where they ask people, to back up these things, and they're not just defending and saying, well, 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 you know, putting themselves on the defensive. We want to be on the offense uh, by arming ourselves with this knowledge. Uh, so may Allah Ta'ala protect them and all of us and give us insight into these realities. Ameen. Allahu wa rasuluhu a'lamu sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.
So what time is it? Uh, I told Shams that we have 10 minutes or 8.10. So if there's any questions, we have a few minutes. Okay. Uh, I'll go back to that. So, yeah, she's asking for the the image on the front page. Why does it have Al-Fatiha on the gay rainbow flag? That is the name of an organization in Toronto. You know, quote-unquote, gay Muslims. Uh, yeah. Yep. And read the read the placards as well. Uh, actually, I think this is in the UK. The, this picture. So they may have a branch in the UK. You can tell it's the UK from the police uniform. But they they have these organizations in Canada. There's one in Washington D.C. And in the UK, you have a couple. Yeah. I think one of the bigger challenges sometimes to our communities is that uh, how do you address people who want to celebrate their things or show support for Muslims, but it's something that might say they're coming to the event. For them, they're both, whether you know, locally, they want to be supported of that religion. What, what's their, like, uh, what kind of thing is that? And how do you address this? Yeah. We have to be careful here. The, the question, we can boil the question down to how do we deal with those Muslims who appear to give support or have acceptance for that, you know, the LGBT stuff. I think we have to be careful and determine to what extent they're supporting and accepting. What does that actually mean in their terms? For some, that is a, an affirmation that it's sinful in our religion, but they think that they should be allowed to do whatever in a secular society because they think that the more freedoms they have, the more freedoms we'll have. There are some people who believe that. And this is very problematic, but it's not the same as a person who says, I accept it as a legitimate lifestyle and I don't believe it's haram. Two, two very different things. They're both blameworthy, but one is actually rejecting what Allah has said in the Qur'an, and the other one accepts that it's haram, but they're saying for political expediency, we should just, you know, in this society, sharia isn't the rule of law, so they should just do whatever, and, you know, if they have freedom, it kind of takes pressure off of us. I think that's a silly argument, but it's not the same as accepting it. So we have to determine what exactly are they accepting. If they are accepting them as allies, even if they're not comfortable with the lifestyle, it's still problematic. Um, think about the wife of Lut Why exactly was she destroyed? The Tafasir mentioned, and I was curious, you know, what exactly did she do? Because she herself wasn't a part of that lifestyle. She was heterosexual. She was the wife of Lut and the wives of the prophets, according to one hadith, they're actually protected from adultery. So she's not engaging in those practices. So why was she destroyed? 
And the tafasir mentioned that she was destroyed because she took them as allies. And they used that word, wala, right? Wala, which is you know, allegiance. She took them as allies. She had a soft spot for them and accepting them. And because of that, they, she was destroyed. So it's a very dangerous game. When we say we don't accept it, it doesn't mean that we're, we're harsh or rude to people or we, do, we, we abuse them in any way if, they're, if they identify as that. But we have moral standards. And, it, you know, the same way we deal with a person drinking or a person sleeping around or smoking marijuana, if they're struggling with that thing and they're not doing it in the moment, we're not going to scream at them or hurt them or anything like that. But if they want to come around and advocate for drugs or they want to wear a shirt celebrating drinking alcohol and they want to come into the masjid and talk about that, we don't accept that. Why would we accept that? So, yeah. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm not scared of gay people. Yeah. Right? Uh, the, when they attach phobia to terms, I, I believe it's usually inaccurate. Right? So if someone says, is Islam homophobic? I would ask them, well, define what you mean by homophobic. Do you mean that we disapprove of the lifestyle and the actions? If that's how you define homophobia, then we'd say, yes, but that's an, an, an inaccurate word to describe that belief. We wouldn't use the word homophobia. We would just say uh, moral repugnance. right? So we have to ask them to define what they mean by homophobia. If they say, if they give the proper definition, which is uh, a, an irrational fear of homosexuals, I don't have an irrational fear of homosexuals. So, if someone has an irrational fear, then I guess they are, but no one really identifies like that. So. Not always yes or, or, or no. That other, or Define your terms, define yes. So you use the word friends. Yeah, define what you mean by friend. Um, define what you mean by friend. If you mean friend as in a loose acquaintance, oh, how was the test? How did you do? How was your day? You know, pleasantries and just in Arabic they call that mudarat, you know, just sociability. That would be fine with anybody because in that moment they're not engaged in anything. That's just something that they identify with, but in that moment they're not doing any of that. So you can have good character with people and pleasantries and exchange pleasantries. But I wouldn't call that friendship, right? If you mean friendship as something deeper than that, where you're confiding in them and they confide in you and you rely on them and they rely on you and you have a, comp you have a really strong bond, you know, 
I don't think so. That doesn't mean you have to be rude to them. It just means that you keep your, your, your circle of friends very narrow with people whose values align with yours. Because when you start to bring into your intimate friend circle people whose values don't align with yours, what happens is you either you lower your standards and you begin to have a soft spot for uh, these things, these, these, act, these activities. And, you know, they're wronging themselves at the end of the day. And Allah Ta'ala says, You know, don't, don't incline to people uh, who, you know, engage in wrong, lest you uh, are touched by the fire. So it's care- you have to be very careful how you navigate relationships, of course, in a public setting. So depends on what you mean by friend. No. No. Yeah, fisk mu'lin, you know, open fisk. No. Yeah. Why don't we bring some, I mean, material to market, give it for what is over here, from here, have the answer. Do kids read anymore? I don't know. Maybe we can make some TikTok videos. So I've asked these these guys a few times this question. What is the percentage of young men who are, they're okay with that lifestyle, even if they're not themselves part of it? What would you guess? Okay, and behind you. Yeah. Okay, young ladies. What's and I? You know, I've asked you this question before. Uh, what percentage of young women in your school would you say are okay with it, even if they are not a part of it? Okay. What about Gateway? Anyone? All. Well, <laughs> yes, Yeah. for younger parents, probably. I think it's you touched on it a little bit. As far as like raising the identity, I think having those kids, male boys, you know, like being strong and like giving that and the same thing in the girls and feminism. Mm-hmm. It's very important. I think that's where. To keep up, I think it's seeing those things like the kids were like the boys playing with the girls and stuff, like while you're kids, and I think this is you know, wrong. Like, they're, oh, they want to music and like, like all those arts. And stuff. I think we have to push our kids, our boys, towards what is male driven and masculine, and while female. And I think that's not too much one you know, solution, but I mean, definitely is important because those things need other solutions. Absolutely. I, I agree wholeheartedly. You had a question? I think it's possible to control ourselves. Like, under the 
and like they're basically giving into the desire acting on the desire of being doing the longer long game mm-hmm. that can like kind of acting the thought of like yeah, I think yeah, I think you, we can feel sorry for people who are suffering from dysphoria, which is a mental illness, right? While at the same time, you know, we can distinguish between people like that you describe and people who make da'wah to it and push it in the public and advocate for it and try to spread it, right? Those people have to be countered. We have to respond intellectually. Um, for those people, we wouldn't have the same soft spot as those who are in, you know, in their own private life. They're going through that, and you experience that. Yeah. I mean, everything I'm saying tonight doesn't address how you deal with that person in real life. In real life, you know, you, you have to navigate how you address people, how you deal with them. Right? I had someone today who identifies with this, asked a question about this, non-Muslim. We, we spoke about desires versus actions versus, versus identity. They have never heard that in their life. And they were very appreciative of the comment and said that they want to commit to not acting on the desires and not identifying with those desires and seeking a better way. Right? So, you know, people go through different things. Yeah. Well, in Pakistan, you have the hijras, right? That uh, those males that dress effeminately. Yeah. 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 I was I was surprised when I saw them in Karachi one time. I was, I was taken aback. Yeah. Where? I forgot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. How is it conceding to them? Female gender role, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we recognize human nature, you know, that's the thing. Uh, we had a non-Muslim group visit the masjid today for Juma, and we had them three weeks in a row, different groups. And it's an open Q&A, and every single week we get the same question. Why do the men and women pray separately? And I give the same answer each time. 
I say, well, in Islam, we recognize human nature. We don't pretend that human nature doesn't exist uh, and that we're angels. That's why when men would pray in the front and women would pray in the back. Because if it was the other way around, men as visual creatures, are not, they're going to be in prayer checking out the ladies. It's just the way people are, right? So you have a, you have a nature and you have a spectrum of, you know, on how that nature is expressed. So you know, we speak to people according to ideals and realities. Right. All right. That question is really good, and I'd like to address it in more detail. But we ran out of time. So next week, inshallah.